0: I notice that when I'm moving a client, I'm up front with the client. I am my mind is whirling on where to go, where to pick. We've got to be within a decent shot, thirty yards. Anything outside of that, you know, we're not going to take. Um, it's got to be to where this bull can get a good broadside shot, and you've got to be aggressive, but you've got to be patient. And so now figure all that out with an animal that is insanely.
1: <laughs> Keyed up Keyed yep. up
0: sensitive to, you know uh yeah um it's uh it's like when when i first started it was just like there is no light at the end of the tunnel <laughs> there just there just isn't and then day after day there's a little bit and, and you know and so there's light at the end of the tunnel yeah uh, you know it's been phenomenal
2: These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit sigsauer.com. You want to talk about elk? Sure.
1: Talk about whatever you want, buddy.
2: Let's talk about elk. What do you know about elk?
1: Man, continual mystery, but starting to put the pieces together a little bit, I think. Yeah. Plains animal.
2: Hemingway said that to get started writing something, all you needed to do was write one true thing. Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, come coming back to the question... What do you know about elk?
1: Elk bugle a lot in September.
2: Yeah. Some of them. Yeah. Sometimes.
1: Yeah. They also bugle all year round.
2: They do bugle all year long.
1: I think I've heard an elk bugle every month of the year. I have. Mm Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. I've heard bulls make cow sounds. Totally. I've heard cows make bull sounds. That's the one that freaks me out. One thing that I... Absolutely know about elk is that you cannot score a bugle. Amen. You cannot hear a bugle and determine the age or size of that bull.
1: Right. It kind of goes without saying, right? Like the biggest bull in the in the herd could sound like a dink, and vice versa.
2: And we've seen bulls in the last couple weeks that you know are are really short time. They're narrow. They don't have mass, but they're very aggressive and they're running off substantially larger bulls, both in terms of antler and body size. Can
1: you associate a type of bugle with a level of aggression in a bull?
2: Yeah, but it's not even necessarily aggression. You know, one of the things that I picked up on early this year, because every year's a little bit different. You're coming into it with new knowledge. You've got, um, a different set of circumstances. But if I could work on a bull that was bugling rhythmically, say every minute or two, he was bugling and it sounded more or less the same. And I could call at that bull and he would bugle back at me. Um, wouldn't necessarily change his pitch or tone very much. If I could get that bull to bugle back in a way that his that the length of his bugle changed or that the tone got higher. Every single time that I did that this year, that bull ended up coming in. Mm. That was one of the most major things that, that I learned about calling elk this year was that if I got that tone to change higher or the bugle to get longer, that that meant the bull was coming.
1: Right. That's good for the repertoire. Might not be the same next
2: year. Might not be. Right. It might not be the same this afternoon. True. Very true. And in fact, it hasn't been. Hmm. Um, The last few days, that's been a a very different situation. But, you know, the photo period's different. We're in a different stage of the rut now.
1: It is interesting how fast it changes. Let's call it the last week of the season, day to day, versus the first three, maybe two and a half, three weeks. Yeah seems like that last week, every day is, like, noticeably different. Sure, even morning to evening. Yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. Yeah. You didn't see that two weeks ago.
2: Yeah. And the moon this year has been getting darker as we go. Um, we started the month with a full moon, and mm-hmm. now it's almost a new moon. There's just a sliver of it left. Greg, what, what do you know about elk? They humble you every day. They can hear incredibly well. Yeah. Yeah, we've been getting busted, like stepping on grass from three and 400 yards away. Yeah. A
0: dog's bark, making a mistake, and not picking your feet up. Sounds like a rifle shot going on underneath you.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Was that you that tripped on the log? (laughs) Yeah. Holy buckets. Yeah. Yeah. Kevin and I had to stop and look at each other. Yeah.
0: That was loud. Yeah, it was insanely loud. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> couldn't believe that was me it was just like wow you know
2: because kevin and i were hanging back to to call i had the decoy we were uh-huh. both calling back oh, yeah. and forth and, yeah. you, and you were going ahead with the client to get into position and i hear tree fall on and i look up and see both of you guys stepping over this log and i just was sure that it was not you. Yeah, no, yeah. I gotta fess up to that one. Then I, <laughs> I
1: mean, thought you were wearing steel toe boots. Yeah, right. You know, like
2: like mucklucks or something. You I mean, soccer balled that I, limb. Are you okay? How are your toes? No, you know, I gotta
0: check my boot. I have to <laughs> I have to put some duct tape on it or something. I uh, I thought I'd been pretty good all week or the last couple of weeks. You know, being quiet, being ninja, and and working really really hard at that. And then I pull that stunt. It's like really, you know. And that usually happens to me. It's like you know, dude, you're doing great. Then something just boom, you know,
2: blows up. I just do something stupid. Well, there's there's something going on with with us as guides right now. Where, you know, we've been getting, I've been getting three and a half to f- to four hours of sleep. Um, I have I've got to wind down a little bit uh, longer than you guys do in the evening. So you guys might be getting another half hour. Or so, but. If you string days of that together, your mental acuity drops off. Oh, yeah. Um, your physical abilities drop off. You know, we got back from a hunt the other day and I got out of the buggy and laid on the gravel for like 15 minutes. I, you know, and I wasn't trying to be dramatic. I was so tired that I didn't feel like I could walk inside. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a
0: grind.
1: I ran into an in end table. <laughs> twice in the span of like four minutes. Yeah, I can in see the, the s- mark on your shit. <laughs> yeah, got two diggers there. Yeah.
0: Problem yeah. is, is I do it out in the field. You know,
2: I do, oh, that, we all did, that. Yeah. I do that mistake yeah. out yeah. there. You guys do it yeah. when we get in. No, no, no. We we all make mistakes out there. Um, and that's something that hunters need to be aware of too because they're probably on off hours, whether it's they're waking up earlier, they're staying out later, they changed time zones whatever it is, like this isn't their normal schedule and it is taxing. It's mentally and physically taxing to hunt elk. So if they're on a hunt, that's say longer than three days after day three, there's such a diminishing return on ability to shoot, to be decisive, to do all kinds of things. It's really, really hard. And I tell people all the time, don't pass on the first day what you would shoot on the last day. And the The core of that is that you don't know if you're going to get this opportunity again. So if you would be satisfied with this opportunity at any point during the hunt, you need to capitalize on it whenever you get it, even if it's in the first minute of the first day of your hunt that you've, you know, saved up for, for 10 years or whatever. But another aspect to that, that I don't talk about, and maybe I should, is, uh, is like, look, man, if if you wait until day five or day six, you might make a fatal mistake because, you know, you're just going to be too tired to, to do it right. Agreed.
0: That, that mental capacity to be as sharp as what you should be, to be as sharp as what you think you are, uh, just isn't there. Yeah,
2: yeah. One of the really big challenges, it's been super dry this year, but like you're talking about... We've got to get close to these elk to move them. And people have a big misconception about how far you can actually move an elk with calling. And there are times that, yeah, you can call an elk in from half a mile away. That does happen. It's it's pretty rare, like extremely rare. What is really consistent and effective is if you as a caller can get to 100 to 150 yards away. That's a distance that you can move an elk. If you can get to 100 yards without being detected, man, it's about a done deal because you only have to move them, you know, a short distance before they're in archery range. But when they can hear you stepping on dry grass from 300 yards away, and I'm not exaggerating about that by an inch, how do you ever get within range of the animals to put your shooter out ahead of you in a place where they can intercept the elk before it gets to you Without them detecting you and and be able to call you know it's it's been a massive massive challenge yeah
1: i think that's why you have tactical like a tactical quiver so to speak you know whether you're elevating in a tree yep or you know you, it seems like you can be a little a uh, little louder when you're dogging a herd that's on the move already yeah because elk are loud when they move and as long as you ever win right there but i think it's when they're like Pre movement early morning when they're still sort of like stretching the legs out of what whether it's feeding and getting getting back to bed there's there's just that like tactical advantage to get in there in the dark dark and be quiet yeah before they move there's just like a a laundry list of things you can try
2: and then there's some some physical elements to that in the morning That's going to be, even when it's dry, that's going to be the wettest that the grass ever is, is right before it gets light. And that's going to be the quietest that it is. Sound travel is a lot better in the dark, Mm -hmm. but I still think you're better off moving in that 15 minutes before shooting light. So if you can have bulls located in the dark in the morning, and then you can physically get into their proximity in those few minutes before shooting light and then be set up at first light, to be able to make them move that forty yards or thirty yards or whatever, that nudge, that's money. Yeah, that's an ideal situation.
1: Yeah, and that's uh, specific, I think, to this part of the season a little bit too, because they seem to be more on edge from getting run into the dirt um, than they might be in the second week of September potentially, yeah. and yeah. a little more aware too of what's going on. Yeah, because um, their cows are getting chased all
2: all over the place, and we're hunting front country meaning that we're day hunting and we took uh we took an elk into town today to uh to Heinz Meat Company absolutely love you guys thank you very much for making space for that bull. I know you're busy this time of year bought uh bought some steaks for dinner it's just some that's a great meat shop
1: yeah it's probably the best one I've, there's two in the world there's McDonald's Meat Market in Clearwater Minnesota phenomenal place and Heinz yeah in my opinion
2: Heinz is fantastic yeah Really nice people, and you know, over the years they've just they've done they've done right by me on meat that I brought in there for them to process. You know, if I've got too many hunts going on to process meat myself, and uh, they they just make a lot of good products and good people. But anyway, so we took took meat in there from one bull. This was a mature six point bull, and I'm so tired. What did that bull score? Two ninety nine and five eighths, I believe. Two ninety nine. Right? Two ninety nine and two because it was three eighths shorter than. Yeah,
1: that's right. Yeah, yep.
2: two ninety nine and two eighths, but he was old. His ivories were worn down to about nothing. I Coolest
1: can't, ivories I've ever seen.
2: Yeah, really beautiful. So many, so many layers of dark in there too. Um, but they were the most worn down ivories I've ever personally encountered. Uh, and we're gonna send his his uh, premolars off to a lab. So that we can figure yeah, out the data. exactly how old he is, but that bull weighed was he 636 pounds, 635 or 636 live, right? That was his live weight. Um, hanging weight was 416. Yeah. So we we cut off neck, back straps, uh, rib meat, brisket, tenderloins, front quarters, hind quarters. And it stays bone-in. We're not deboning. So that's what we well, that's what we packed in. And typically, that's what you're going to be packing off the mountain as well. Yeah. Is back straps, tenderloins, neck, rib, brisket, quarters. He was 320 pounds on the hook um, in there at the yeah. butcher shop. So when you're thinking about your backcountry hunt, take what you have in your pack and how much that weighs and... For me to be real lightweight on say a, a three day hunt, I can get my pack with my weapon down to about thirty five pounds. Yeah. That's yeah. Not not easy to do. It's expensive. I think that's fair. It's I think forty five is
1: probably yeah. more realistic for
2: most folks. Sure.
1: So, so yeah, right th- thirty
2: five, forty five pounds. Um and now you've got to get out an additional three hundred and twenty pounds.
1: Yeah. I run into a lot of guys in Idaho solo hunting that are way deep and with no plan. Dude. And we've had a hot September. The world's hot right now and everything's on fire, seemingly. You need to get that animal out of there quickly. Mm -hmm. And heavy and
2: quick do not normally go together. No. They shouldn't. And, you know, if it's in a game bag and it's hanging in the shade, especially these nicer game bags like Argali, and if you've got them hanging in the shade like that, all the moisture in that meat is coming out and it's dehydrating and it's cooling. So even if it's hot, that meat's going to be okay hanging like that. But when you strap it to your pack, and I think a lot of people forget about this, when you strap that meat to your pack and your pack goes over the top of it and it's all cinched down nice and tight to, you know, whatever it is that you're carrying it with, it is no longer able to dehydrate because you've just wrapped it up. So now you've got hot meat coming out. Yeah. We
1: packed out a bull out of Idaho for a fella that we hunted with um, a couple years ago. And we had five folks helping us get that elk out of there. Yeah. Pretty lightweight stuff for the most part. Right. Compared to doing it by yourself. Yeah. And it was about a four-mile pack out on trail. And by mile two in, there is a piece of loose meat next to in a game bag next to the back of the frame on somebody's back. And that had, like, probably almost two inches of fully cooked meat. Yeah. from Just from back sweat and
2: back heat. Yeah, just gray, nasty. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, I mean, that that stuff happens often.
2: Yeah. And it's a shame. It is, yeah. It really is. The backcountry thing has become such a trend. Such a trend that backcountry.com had to go around and sue everybody that's using the (laughs) word backcountry. Right. (laughs) Like... I just don't know if people understand what carrying three hundred twenty pounds of meat for any distance is like. Yeah. And I've done it; I've done it a bunch, Yeah. and it it will cripple you.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's definitely like an off two days after that to yeah. to just recover and hang out. Yeah, I don't think it's I don't think people should be discouraged to do it. I think they just should be smarter about the. There is a lot of elk in one mile in from a trailhead, you know, yeah. and and there is a lot of opportunity to make a good plan and think about extraction
2: too. Well, not letting that hamper your adventure. Well, and know what the numbers are. Yeah, yeah. Like if if you didn't know that that's how much a big bull weighs, now you do. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot. It's heavy. It's heavy stuff. Heavy meat. Yeah, pack and weight. I uh, I broke a pack mm-hmm. last year, um, packing packing moose out. I've used a lot of packs over my life. You know, when I lived uh, out here at Fraser we made our own packs that we repelled with and they were made to fit the cardboard of our firebox inside of, and we were carrying anywhere between 105 and 150 pounds off mm. of those fires. And those pack outs would last, I think as long as like 10 or 12 hours, mm-hmm. which is a long time to have that kind of weight on your yeah. back. So, you know, my evolution has gone from packs that I made when I didn't know what I was doing to, you know, today's packs which there's a lot of really great ones out there
1: yeah and, and smartly designed packs that help manage that weight in a way that's safe to you. Yeah. you can you can throw a lot of a lot of weight on some of these packs and and feel pretty comfortable
2: yeah what pack were you carrying you're carrying a, a day pack for this what were you carrying this year it was a kuyu
0: yeah. one of those smaller kuyu day packs
2: you happy with it
0: yeah for the most part i like you know every stock a lot great product uh, this is a great product, like Kevin said. There's there's so many great products out there in today's
2: world. To we're so fortunate. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, I never packed out much when I was a kid, but those backboards, you know, they were probably from the forties, probably from World War II. It's brutal. Just brutal. Yeah. Just brutal. yeah. Um, and Wood then wooden boards. wooden frames, wooden and frames. stretched canvas. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. You know, people uh, are making those at trade shows now and selling them, and uh, taxidermists are, are making mounts to put on those old pack boards yeah. to make like a little retro image, uh-huh. and uh, they do look cool. Some of them look cool. Some of them look kind of dorky, but some of them look really cool, but I think it's funny. I see, you know, at, at trade shows, people are packing around these old-, these old Those old backboards? Old stuff. Wow, pack yeah. Pack. Cool.
0: I've yeah. still got my old- Trap and basket, you know, from Minnesota. Or, you know, Minnesota traps, probably like you know, I got when I was ten years old, nine years old. I still got it. Um, it's I've got a bunch of fox fur stuffed in it, but uh, yeah. So those baskets,
1: wicker. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Cool. What
2: is wicker? We woven just do woven Wood. wood. But what? Yeah. What was the wood? Was it birch or something like I that? I would imagine it had, birch. Had it been poplar or birch. Poplar, yeah, birch. Poplar, birch. Yeah. 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 Super bendy and scratchy yeah. and. Yeah. But strong. Yeah. yeah. I used a pile of different packs this year. I used uh, that Everly stock mainframe and I just had the bat wings on it. And I have one of each color so that I can help remember <laughs> where <laughs> stuff is. <laughs> so there's a green one and a tan one. And uh, I had that in case, you know, we had to haul an elk out of someplace gnarly because there's no beating. A sure enough external frame when it's time to haul heavy like there's no beating it yeah especially
1: um, with a shelf that doesn't slide yeah that's game change especially it's if you're going massive. short
2: distance where comfort
1: really isn't the worst part it's just like yeah okay, i gotta eat out now yeah
0: yeah yeah you know and you talked about <laughs> i think you mentioned you know getting hurt trying to get out with that load young man middle-aged man you know i'm getting up there and uh Got a good friend, uh, Jeff. He was uh, on the coastal range. Took a nice bull by himself. Had to get it out of that coastal range. And I think he did it in two loads. And uh, it was hurting him. But he said he gets just almost to the pickup, but there's this huge cut bank. And he was standing there. He cut his toe like I did, uh, I think, the other day. And he just face plants down off of this cut bank, and this load just drives him, just pile drives him into the bank down there. And he says, I was laying there, breathing mud and dirt, thinking, what the heck am I doing, you know? <laughs> so uh, just climbing over deadfall can can just ruin your day,
1: Yeah, you know? Yeah, it's like walking a mile. Yeah, One step. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. Well, the injury factor is real. A lot of people blow out their Achilles when they're packing too much weight. Yeah. That's a real common injury. And um, what I've heard the most is guys who actually injure it the next day. Uh, really? Yeah. So they're warmed up while they're carrying everything. Right. And everything gets so tight that the next day they'll, like, reach for a jar of peanut butter and try and get up on their tiptoes and wow. pop goes the Achilles and their calf shoots up to the back of their knee. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, if that one doesn't hit you in the middle of the throat. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. Yikes. Um, I used a lot of, uh, I used several different day packs this year. Pretty nice to have a rifle scabbard. Not just for a rifle, but being able to have a good place that you can put a, a decoy in. Slide it right in that rifle scabbard and be able to reach back without taking my pack off and pull that decoy out. Cause it's no fun to walk through the woods with a decoy, um, in your hands. You know, it's loud. It catches on stuff. It's big, but sometimes you realize, okay, that bull's coming from here. I wasn't expecting that. He's going to see me. He needs to see an elk right here. If he doesn't, he's going to hang up and then blow out and that's not going to give my shooter enough time. So reach back, pull out your decoy and then, uh, then you're in the game.
0: That was the one thing about my pack that I realized it's too small for the decoy. Yeah. You know, yeah. so next year I'll have to adjust for that.
2: Yeah. What about you, Kevin? What are you carrying?
1: I've run a lot of packs this year and in the years past, I've been running an EXO pack. Yeah. Um, they make like an 1800 on the K3 frame. That's slick. It's something that you can use for like a two, three day ordeal, but cinches down. I just like having a sure enough frame. Yeah. Um, And their system's really simple, especially for packing meat. It doesn't necessarily have a meat shelf, but it's got securing straps across the frame that hold the load secure. Because the worst part for me when I'm packing stuff is the sway, like a lateral sway from Mm. side to side. That just
2: ruins me. That's because you're so tall, buddy. (laughs) Yeah, I know.
1: And that's part of the problem, too, is I have a hard time finding packs that fit me because I have super long legs and a short torso. They've got interchangeable frames, height braces, essentially, to make that pretty comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we were talking about that earlier. I'd rather have a load go straight on my back than a quarter inch off my you know,
2: to the lateral. Yeah. And I'm already wide. Um, so <laughs> I don't mind if my pack I, yeah. I can't you can't find a pack that's as wide as I am. Yeah. Um so sure. that's not a big deal for me. What is a big deal and it got me into a bunch of trouble and I, I like that that exo pack a lot too. I really do, and I I used it for years. But when I was mountain goat hunting a couple of years ago, we're going up this very, very steep face that one might call a cliff, you know, and got up on the edge of it. And I was trying to look up to see like where I could put my hands next. Mm -hmm. You guys can't see me, but I look like a bad mime right now. So I'm reaching up to like, try to find a place for my hands. And I couldn't look up far enough because as I tilted my head back, it would hit my pack because that pack's tall and skinny. So man, I I was in a jam and actually, uh, Will, my guide, had to come over and help me. And it, it was horribly embarrassing, but he had to help me figure out how to get off of that. And yeah. Jordan, Jordan Bud was right behind me and she helped me too. Kind of just push it back towards the face almost. Were you tipping backwards? Well, I just couldn't see where I needed to find a ledge to be able to yeah, put my hands. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I couldn't feel around for it. In Alaska, the rock is all broken. There's mm-hmm. not a trustworthy rock in that state as far as I can tell. Yeah. So I like being able to have, you know, good range of movement, um, to be able to look up if I need to.
1: Yeah. And see, conversely, in most of the country that I hunt, it's probably 90% side hill. Yeah. So anything swaying to my side is taking me down the hill.
2: Yeah. Whereas I'm not really doing much cliff diving. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. I don't, with, with good stabilizer straps and a good waist belt, I don't really worry about the sway factor, but I'm closer to the ground than you are. Yeah,
1: that's true. A little yeah. lower center
2: of gravity. Yeah. Yeah. You're uh you're built for speed and me for stability. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good pair. Good guide uh, combo there. Um, let's talk some more about gear. I've been using the same bugle tube for like five years. Yeah. I've used some other ones in the meantime, but I keep going back to the, the big bat. Mm-hmm. And the the little bugle tubes I do really like, especially early in the season. I love to cow call on them. They sound better with the cow call than the big bugle tubes, and I cow call through a tube a lot. But uh, I'm I'm kind of stuck in my ways at this point. I found reeds that I like. I found tubes that I like. I can make all the sounds that I want to make with them. Yeah. And I've only got about half a dozen sounds that I use anymore.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I think it's uh, we talked about this quite a bit this week, but that lost calf cow sound, it's just, it just works. Yeah. Because really what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to pull that cow to lead that bull in because the herd bull at this time of year seemingly isn't too interested if he's got things in front of him. Yeah. So pulling that cow off maybe to come check things out is pretty helpful. Yeah. And that's been pretty helpful and successful in the last few years of hunting this week of the season for sure.
2: Yeah. And if you're using bull sounds too, it makes more sense to try to – call cows out of a herd than it does to try to call a bull out of a herd because if you're trying to call cows away from that bull he's probably going to have a stronger response to that than if you're trying to call him out
1: yeah the only time I used a challenge bugle this week is when we were dogging a herd and the bull was in the back and I was close enough to where I thought I could get him to come 20 yards just to say hey get out of here yeah it would have been a super quick shot like seconds to make it but other than that um, there hasn't been a whole lot of opportunities to really get close enough in the middle of the day during like a bedding sequence where that bull feels comfortable enough to leave right like
2: they're they're hanging up with their cows i lit balled for the first time ever yeah. In, yeah. The, in the wild this year and i've made fun of the lip ball a lot but this bull did it to me three times in a row and i was kind of pissed and like <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if, roll if, reversal if you're gonna say that to me i'm gonna say it to you son uh, it didn't work. <laughs> it did not. No, no, it didn't. But you That's know, okay. I might add that on to the to the end of this show. I recorded about half an hour of the hunt that morning, just the audio from it, and I think people would be surprised at how much I'm calling and how much the elk are calling back at me. And while we did dog that herd, which is not a tactic that I recommend, my bad. We. Ended that day with a three hundred inch six point inside archery range. Yep, ready to die.
1: Yeah. I think that that sequence is worth talking about because it's something that happens a lot, but people people think or people just ignore that because they think
2: the herd is gone. Yeah, but they forget about the stragglers, man. Dude, it's like jumping ducks. Yeah. yep. And if you haven't jumped ducks, here's what often happens you super sneak up to the edge of the ditch or the pond or the levee or whatever body of water them ducks are sitting on and you get up there and a big explosion of wings and tails uh, comes off the water and you go boom 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 and maybe you miss maybe you don't probably you did some missing because you went too fast And then as you're standing there, like seven more ducks casually get up that just didn't get the memo and they would have been so easy to shoot. This same thing often happens with herds, especially in the morning because the bulk of the herd is, you know, leaving feeding ground. They're going to through their transition zone. They're going to bed and you're following them along and you can't catch up because elk are faster than we are. And if you do catch up then they just see you and then they run away, the wind switches causes problems. But there are those slow ducks, oftentimes, that are coming a little bit later. It can be half an hour later. Yep. But rather than just dog that herd, hang tight. And if you've got the wind right, which, you know, you often will, just wait. And if you hear a bull that's coming along, he's probably going to come the same way that herd just did. Get in the way. And as he starts to come in, what I do is I'll wait for him to bugle. And then I will cow call and it'll be one call or two and it's mellow. And what I'm trying to say is I'm waiting for you. Take your time. Yep. I think the
1: one thing to add to that situation is setting the context a little bit for the type of topography we're in and how that bull reacted with a lot of stimulus around him. Mm. So James was calling in the bottom of a river draw, not a whole lot of topography, probably 100 feet to the top maybe, yep, yep. and I was side hill with, with the client. And we set up in a good zone with many shooting lanes, and, and he had to cross a little bit of an opening, but he's got probably 120 elk down canyon that he can hear very well. He knows that herd's going there. He's changing his direction because of James's calling, what he thinks is maybe a lone cow that is also doing the same thing he is. What happened, and I think is this is why we didn't kill that bull, that, that bull needed two more steps to get to where we could shoot him, but he could see all the way to where that sound was coming from with no visual cue as to what was there. So he's peering into the bottom of this draw, sees nothing except for a phantom cow sound, and he's like, well, I don't need to go down there. There's 150 elk over here. Right. He's, he's dogging the herd just like we are, so to speak. But if we would have popped a decoy or if, if I would have got up a little farther, um, maybe even six yards, right, two yeah. steps, that's a dead bull. I just think they're visually, they, they take visual clues on the way back to bed more so than they do in, in, in the evening than the morning. So yeah. Yeah. I think it's worth noting that if you're going to make a sound, make sure he either can see what you're doing and
2: put a decoy up or get farther back. Right. Or farther forward if you're the hunter. And if you're setting up to start calling and you're sending a hunter forward or a shooter forward, they have to be all the way quiet yep yep um, because wherever the last sound was made is going to be the point where that elk expects to see something right so when we had um, Dirk's Bentley out here earlier this year on his last morning we got into a bunch of elk and um, I ended up getting busted by a five point who had just bedded early right on the edge of the ridge I don't feel too bad about that. But he jumped up and saw us, and there was nothing we could do, so he left. We went and looked at a new area, um, and got that bull to change his tone. And I was like, "Man, we got it! You know, this bull, this bull wants us, and it's going to happen quick." And uh, I said, "Dirk's, you've got to get to that tree," and it was about forty yards away across the clearing. And I was like, "And he can't make any sound, not any at all." He's like, okay. And he did it.
1: He yeah, ninjed over
2: there and he got there and set up. And that bull came in on a string and it just saw him move. He moved at the wrong time and, and that was it. You yep. know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That happens too, especially open country like that. It's tough because so you're not going to get a shot in thick stuff. So you got to kind of draw them across something open. And man, every little sliver of it, mo- they're just keyed up right yeah. then. Yeah. After a long night of hanging out in the feed ground. Yeah. Gosh. It's been a good season. Yeah. Biggest lesson.
0: So, we've done a couple past episodes, James and I, and so we need to let the folks that don't know me understand that I'm new to this. I've grown up trapping. I'm a predator man. A lot of calling. Coyotes. Wolves. Some cats. um, You know, lions. And I'm new to this. And it's been an incredible couple of weeks of being able to work with these two and what they have taught me. Their patience and it is it's 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 like learning to walk again almost. There's a lot of things that I know but there's a lot that I I, I don't and it's neat to come into a different species and start picking up these little pieces of technique and knowledge that is these guys have worked on probably most of their lives, and they're gracious enough to show me and teach me. And the biggest, gosh, it, uh, that's that's hard to come up and just, you know, the biggest lesson because there's been so many, but you got to get in close, and you've got to do it right. you got to be quiet. You've got to set up to where if something comes in from the side, you've got to pick that spot to where you can get the shot, you know, left, right, forward. Um You've got to get in there without getting busted. you got to watch you win. You know, don't trip over the log. James and I have had, you know, conversation that, you know, I'm the type of guy when you go out and get a Christmas tree. Um, I'll hunt all day. Finally, the family goes, you know, enough of this. Just pick one. And I'll go, oh, look at that one up there. James will cut the very first one in the bar ditch and just go home. And so I noticed that when, I'm moving a client. I'm up front with the client. I am my mind is whirling on where to go, where to pick. We've got to be within a decent shot, 30 yards. Anything outside of that, you know, we're not going to take. Um it's got to be to where this bull can get a good broadside shot and you've got to be aggressive, but you've got to be patient. And so now figure all that out with an animal that is insanely <laughs> Keyed up. Keyed yep. up, sensitive, to, you know, uh, yeah. Um, it's uh, it's like when, when I first started, it was just like there is no light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> it just There just isn't. And then day after day, there's a little bit, and, and you know, and so there's light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's been phenomenal.
2: One of the real key things I learned from you about setting up for coyotes is you always – set up for a downwind shot you know a coyote is going to swing to the downwind side and that that's going to be your opportunity to shoot at him and i think part of that is because a coyote sense of smell is so good that he's willing to give up his visual acuity which is also good and expose himself at that point with elk there is no downwind shot it you you don't get that opportunity ever right and uh, it would be super cool if it worked like that. <laughs> yeah. um, but we're also hunting coyotes with rifles.
0: Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, they all have the cover. They can move through that cover. They use that cover to, to try and get downwind to see what you are. And so you got to be set up to take them before they get there. You know, it's like when we were sneaking in yesterday. Um, I was up front with the client. We're pushing, pushing, pushing. We're running out of time. We've got a bull that wants to. He's interested. He's coming. And it was the first time it's like oh i see it you know it's like the veil has been lifted i see this decent setup if i can just get this guy down into this place that bull's going to come up out of that draw around that hillside he's going to pop out right there the minute he steps out we got it we got a good side shot and in the last five steps there was two cows that busted us you know in into the story right there um if those two cows hadn't been there, I think we'd have probably killed a bull.
2: There's so many ways for it to go wrong. Yes, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so many ways for it to go wrong. Biggest lesson you've learned this year? You've got to hunt elk in a couple different states already.
1: Yeah, um,
2: three, right?
1: Yep. Yeah. And I think uh, there's a couple things. First, generally speaking, know when to go and know when to stay. I think that's a hard, hard line to find the answer to.
2: Yeah. No. No one to hold them, no one to fold them. Yeah,
1: basically. Um, and I think people get so hung up on being so aggressive or so patient. That middle ground is where you're going to kill bulls. The second one is just being able to change and evolve with the elk day to day in a week. I think that's really important to, to just listen to what they're saying and not without giving it some human emotion, but understand what's happening in the herd dynamic at that time and then making a play to, to go kill that bull. That's a big one. And I think the third is just talking about um, setup. I think that's the most important thing Um, because, like, the bro guys, born and raised guys talk about you got to kill them as soon as you can, like the first opportunity you get. You don't really get, like, oh, he's going to walk broadside at 30 and then come to 20 at broadside. It doesn't happen often. And it's really hard to set up with two guys, really difficult, especially with movement. So I think um, what I've been trying to do is pick the second-to-best spot in a, in terms of like all these bedded cows everywhere, you know you can you can pick a good spot all day long, but you're probably not going to get to that spot every time. So picking that second best spot is routinely beneficial.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that tactically. You know that that was my that was my tactic militarily as well. You know, if you go with plan A, it's predictable, like. Because that's, that's the, the route that makes the most sense. Mm -hmm. So I think that if, if it were me, I would go this way. So I'm going to put an IED right there and then I'm going to blow up that tank when it comes through. So I was like, okay, you know, if I was trying to blow up a tank, that's what I would do. I would go with wherever I thought they were going to go. So I was like, well, how do I avoid that? I think that I'll just take the second best option. So I've got to make some sacrifices Maybe it's not as efficient. Maybe I've got some other exposure, but at least it's not predictable. Yeah. And if you're willing to sacrifice perfection and go with the first tree that you can hang an ornament off of, um, rather than, you know, the, the perfect Hallmark Christmas tree, then you might've, you might've gained some ground, but within setups, something that we talked about with our hunter the other day was finding L shaped cover. And I've harped on people long enough about standing in front of trees instead of behind trees that I think they're probably tired of hearing from me about it. Don't hide behind a tree because you can't shoot through the tree. So by the time you see the animal, they're right next to you and then you can't draw and it's over with. So you hide in front of the tree. What's even better than that is finding a tree that's off to your side and a tree that's behind you because then when the animal comes next to you, you are blocked in. And you can get away with a lot. And you can let your camouflage do its job. Also paint your damn face. Yeah. Yeah, make your nose and ears go away. You Unnatural know, shapes che- in nature. Cheekbones. I mean, we just glow in the morning and in the evening. If you've got a camouflaged body and an uncamouflaged face, it just glows.
1: Hands too, I think, you yeah, know. The
2: back of hands, especially your bow hand.
1: We've been working with a couple guys here, too, about when to draw. I think that's an age-old debate, right? Um, and it goes kind of back into this whole conversation about, like, the sort of best time. Right. So when I was setting guys up this week, I, I like to think about, okay, that's my draw tree or that's my draw bush. If he comes this way, he's going this, I'm going to draw here, or whatever. That's extremely helpful because that red zone stuff, man, is every movement is is crucial. Yeah. And you got to be able to hold your bow back a little bit too, because maybe that draw tree is, he's at 60. Yep. And he's got to come another 20 steps. And it might
2: take him a minute and a half to get there. Sure. And the only way that you can hold your, your bow back, no matter what kind of condition you're in for longer than 30 seconds, is if you're not aiming while you're holding it back. Yeah. You can only aim for like 15 seconds before you were absolutely yeah, smoked. So drawing your bow and then lowering your shoulders a little bit, getting away from your anchor point and just observing. You know, you're holding up six pounds of pressure with your bow arm. You're holding back, you know, 10 pounds of pressure with your draw arm. It's not that bad. You can no. do that for a while. But if you are trying to hold a pin and look through your peep, you're going to burn out really quick. Right, right. Another thing that people don't practice since we're talking about draws, very few people practice letting down. Yeah. And because of that, because they haven't developed that skill or the muscles to do that smoothly, they hold back until they feel like they can't hold back anymore. And then when they let down, they let down so hard that sometimes the arrow comes off the string, they accidentally bump their release, you know, all kinds of things go wrong. At a minimum, they make too much movement and they scare the animal. So practice that, you know, during the season, because we're not just practicing shooting, we're, we're practicing Hunting, right?
1: Yeah, I think that's a good tip. Hot tip, hot tip, little pro tip for you. Pro staff move. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a whole week like this, folks. <laughs> <Yeah. sighs> I am fun. so tired. Yeah, he's tired. I'm running at about 63%. You said 63
2: four days ago. No,
1: I said 100. James said 63.
2: Okay. You were lying about the 100, though, exaggerating (laughs) at a minimum. Trying to keep the positivity high. (laughs) I guided for a week, and then I had to run to Vegas for a wedding. (laughs) Notoriously good place to get some quality rest. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) So I was there for 48 hours, scooted straight back here, and I think we had a bull dead the next day. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Man, oh, man been an incredible season though incredible season yeah you only get so many septembers it is such a
1: glorious month too because it just goes fast it changes some days it goes slow yeah suddenly we'll be shoveling snow you know
2: yeah no i mean there was there was one morning i think it was with dirks it was so freaking quiet there wasn't a bird or a squirrel or an airplane in the sky no crickets nothing it was dead Quiet. It was so freaking quiet, and the elk didn't want it. Quarter moon.
0: Yeah. You know. Yeah.
2: It was. It was. It was eerie. But that evening they ripped. Yeah. Yeah. My ears were ringing. Yeah. I
1: got this theory that they can't help themselves. Like it's like if it's a quiet morning, it's gonna have to turn on. Like they just can't help
2: it. Like red sky in the morning. They type got. Deal? They gotta do. it. They gotta do something. I don't know. You know, I. Of course, the Snake River you know, is hosed now because. You know, more than half of it burned. But uh, I did a hunt out there a couple years ago. And it's a real wolfy area. Real wolfy. Like, there's... The trails are just, like, carpeted. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, used elk in the form of wolf shit. Those woods were dead quiet. And they stayed that way. And I was there for the last week of season. Mm -hmm. Elk just moved on? Or were they still there just being quiet? They were still there. Mm -hmm. um, Because I found them a couple times. But... They were dead quiet. The cows, the calves, the bulls. I didn't hear an elk make a sound for a week of hunting. That's interesting you say that, too, because I have not
1: heard a whole lot of cow chatter this week either. Yeah. Here and there, but not, like, sure enough,
2: moving around. Yeah. A little bit. I haven't had a cow get mad at me this year, which is nice. (laughs) I'm always so personally hurt when I cow call and a cow yells at me. Yeah. 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 And then she just leaves all indignant. <laughs> it's upsetting.
0: I've heard more elk bugle these last couple weeks than I think I have in 10 years working in Idaho. Um, the wolves are just, you know, all over them in Idaho, and those, those elk are so quiet. And I was just blown away by the amount of vocalization um, that they got to experience.
2: It's a lot costlier to give away your position if there's wolves around. Yeah.
1: Man, they won't even do it if they're like, if a bull's with a bunch of cows feeding, he'll just go.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You don't get much.
1: Yeah. So imagine if you got something chasing you down. It's yeah. It's probably like zip that lip. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I imagine. I'm not a
0: biologist. Most most of the wolves <sighs> killed in Idaho are taken by incidental,
2: you know, hunters. Yeah. yeah. And trappers. And some trappers. Thank you to the trappers of yep. Idaho because those guys are saving saving Idaho's wildlife. God bless them. And uh, talked about it uh, this winter a little bit. But if you do go to Idaho, uh, make sure that you are a member of the Foundation for Wildlife Management. And then if you get the chance to uh, to shoot a wolf... Um, you can get reimbursed for uh for some of the costs that are associated with your hunt because they recognize that that by mobilizing um, hunters and incentivizing them to uh to shoot these wolves that it's saving wildlife in a really significant way maybe, yeah. maybe the most meaningful way possible in the state of idaho right now
0: yeah absolutely you know different different reimbursement for different zones depending on How about the depredation has been on the elk, but, uh,
2: and they're in Montana now too. I forgot about that foundation for wildlife management's in Montana now too. We should move them to Oregon and, uh, and start paying people back who are getting out there and getting after it with the mountain lion hunts. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We, you know, we bumped into some of those this week.
2: Oh yeah. I forgot about that. (laughs) I called in a mountain lion this week. Yeah. That was funny. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> funny for some sitting out, sitting out there in the dark and, uh, we'd walked in on this bull, just like, uh, like I described earlier, we used the dark to get in close and he was bugling and doing his thing and had about, I don't know, four minutes before, uh, before shooting light and the bull started to get a little bit farther away and I'd been holding a decoy in front of me and, uh, I thought, well, I'm going to let him know I'm going to let him know that we're here. It's a risk. Like I might call him in and it's too dark, but I, I can't let this bull walk off because in four minutes he could be a long ways away and I can't get him back. So I went, Meow, let out a cow call. And I hear. <laughs> and I, you know, like stiff neck turn to the side. <laughs> I was, I was slow like, and, uh, and this lion, it's like 20 <laughs> yards away from me. And I think it had seen the decoy and was sneaking up on me. Um, and it had, it had probably moved a little bit in the pine needles there when I called. Like, what's happening? <laughs> and uh, so then I've got this bull down here. I've got my client. Like, I can't just shoot this lion. It's going to scare the pants off of him, for one thing, if he hears a 10 mil go off yeah, right behind yeah, him. That's- <laughs> the bull's out of there, for sure. <laughs> You know, and I don't know how big the bull is. You know, this could be the next, you know, world record or whatever. And it's it's the hunter's experience. So, I draw my pistol. I put it on top of my bino harness. And I'm holding the decoy with my other hand. And that's, I like shake the decoy a little bit. Yeah, like that's not doing it. So, then I put the decoy in with my gun hand. And I take my other hand and I'm like shoving, (laughs) making this shoving motion like... Get, go, get, you know, pound sand, Go out home, of here. Go home. Um, I, I, I didn't say pound sand, folks. I used other words. I think you can imagine. But I was I was trying to whisper this mountain lion to go away. It took like two steps towards me, and I was like, mm-mm. So I, I dropped the decoy, both hands on the pistol. I'm presenting it, red dots on cat. I'm like, mm-mm, like, not going to go down like this and it turned and walked off and looked back and walks off a little bit and looks back and then it goes and now it's shooting light now it's game time and meanwhile this bull has been cooking like he wants to know more about this cow that just made the sound so close and i'm sure (laughs) that troy was down there like what is going on he never knew um so i get my decoy back up and call this bull in and um Turns out he was, I can't even remember. He was a five point or something like that. He wasn't the bull that Troy wanted, but he, he came in nice and tight. And, um, it was a, it was a, just a beautiful start to the morning. And, uh, yeah, at the end of that day, we sat down and leaned against a tree and we're talking a little bit how I remember and I was like, oh, by the way. <laughs> by the way, you should have seen Troy's eyes. <laughs> oh, by
0: the way, that little deal that was going on there just at, at shooting light? Yeah, that yeah. was a
2: lion right behind me. Yeah, but yeah. I, I didn't want to tell him right then because it would have freaked him out. Yeah. And, you know, he wouldn't have been able to focus on hunting. But while I was continuing to call that bull in, I was definitely, like,
1: (laughs) trying to keep my head on a swivel. That's a good tactic to know that uh, whooshing a cat doesn't actually work. (laughs) (laughs) Shoo, shoo, kitty. (laughs)
0: So if you'd have had a laser dot on that pistol, would you have played with that cat?
2: Oh, for sure. Tried (laughs) tried to get him to chase it. Sure, sure. Wouldn't that have
0: been fun? That would have been great fun. If I
2: could have got him to chase a laser up a tree, I could have just wrapped my jacket around the base of it and kept him there until the (laughs) – until the elk was over with, and then we could have just shot him with a bow
0: and went on with our well, lives. I think I'd have moved him over in front of Troy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Put the laser right, yeah. right on his pack. <laughs> I bet it would work. I think it would, yeah. But yeah. then, man, you'd fuzz him up, and then we got a problem.
1: Yeah. You know, you couldn't get
2: rid
0: of him. No, you would have to do something yeah. about
1: it. Shout out to Troy, five for five. <laughs> yeah. Five consecutive years, right? Our boy from Maryland. Dude, just coming in and throwing carbon. Slaying, they might say.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Throwing uh, aluminum-coated carbon. I think that only only
0: went 40, 50 yards the other day, right?
2: (sighs) I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, didn't go far, man.
0: Yeah, just out of sight. Yeah. You know, we get there and, you know, what happened? He tells us and he goes, did you hear it fall? Did you hear it crumple? Did you hear it crash? No, no, no
1: that's when you get the scaries a little bit yeah yes I go
0: then you walk around the tree and it's like oh yeah yeah
2: yeah yeah. blood blood dead yep. elk yeah beautiful yeah. yeah Um. so Troy was shooting a 340 spine FMJ he draws 60 pounds if I remember his bow correctly uh, he's got a 26 inch draw and he was shooting 125 grain single bevel single blade broadhead and he drove through a shoulder blade through a rib that split lengthwise like it was a piece of kindling and then all the way through and stuck in a rib in the far side and double lunged that elk and it was dead right there. If he'd been a little bit higher, he would have hit spine and we would have had problems. So I'm not in love with his shot placement by any means and you know we already we already talked about that, Troy. But (laughs) it worked because he had the right gear. And the reason that we recommend heavy arrows and single bevel, single blade broadheads is because when you don't hit exactly where you intend to, that arrow is going to penetrate deeper than if you're shooting some junky expandable or a lightweight carbon arrow or, God forbid, the the combination of the two. Because those just do not penetrate. Like on elk. Like that one that, you know, the first first bull that we got this year. Robbie's bull. That arrow was an FMJ. I'll give him that. So he had a heavy arrow, but he had an expandable on it and it went in four inches and then fell out. Come out. Yeah. Thank God he clipped the heart.
0: One or a half inch lower, you know, elk's gone. Right. You know, or 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 left or right, honestly. Yeah, right. If, left or right. Hit, if he hits a rib. Yeah. 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 Left or right, you know, or a half inch lower, you know, never yeah. would have recovered that bull. But that bull went 100 yards piled up you know we didn't know it i thought the shot was low robbie thought the shot was low we we just we weren't very confident you know until we got around the corner and there's you know good blood more blood and then oh my gosh there he is right there another so, terrific bull. great bull two, you know 297 297
2: one. yeah tremendous bull um he weighed what did he weigh 730 something pounds he's a big bodied son of yeah i think so yeah, four, yeah 433 pound hanging weight yeah. um terrific elk and like what a treasure of a guy that was oh yeah. my gosh first so time much i've fun. got to hunt with him yeah
0: just so impressed with robbie yeah. yeah you know what a blast
2: yeah really cool well it's been fun hunting with you fellas and we got a little bit more hunting yet left to do so let's get at it okay awesome cheers
3: i yeah. Arrgh! <laughs> What? uh uh-huh. mm-hmm. Yeah <laughs>
2: working on building a house this year, which is something that I know nothing about. And I love that. It's exciting. Uh, everything is a new challenge and there's lots of challenges that pop up the other day. We we're laying out rebar and getting ready to pour concrete for the foundation of the shop. That's going to be next to the house. And one of the guys that was there that was helping one of the construction crewmen, I looked over and he had a Stanley thermos sitting on the end of the trailer. I said, how do you like that thing? And he goes, Oh, I love it. I've had it for a decade." It's like. You know, if you find any environment where people are out there working hard, working hard with their hands outside, no matter the conditions, you're probably going to see a Stanley product there. It's something that just goes with that blue collar labor, because that's what this product is doing. It is out there working just as hard as you are. It's going to be there as long as you are. It's going to be there after you're done. It's something that, that I feel passionate about with every piece of gear, that I take either into the woods or into the workplace, like it's gotta be able to outwork me and I work really hard myself. If you are also a hard worker, and I'm sure that you are, then you could probably appreciate the same type of gear. If you go to stanley1913.com and you use the discount code 6RANCH, that's the number six and the word ranch, you can get 25% off just about any of their products. And I encourage you to do that. They're a great supporter of this show and a uh, great supporter of this audience. Again, I love you guys. And I just want to pass this, uh, this discount and the savings on to you. If you want something from Stanley, I encourage you to get it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.